More than 8,000 people are now dead in Gaza as Israel presses ahead with its attacks on the Palestinian enclave. It's Monday, October 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, U.S. officials say there's an elevated risk of war spreading in the Middle East. And a prominent American Sign Language interpreter was among those killed in last week's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Here today, went to a cornhole tournament with his community, and then he was gone. That's really tough to get your head around. Plus the third act story of a woman who went from Harvard Law and cable TV to a career documenting black history. You get at a point where you start asking, what is going to be your leave behind? What did you do in your life that was, you know, significant? Patriots lose, rain in upper 50s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Officials in Gaza say escalating Israeli strikes have killed more than 8,000 people. Hospitals are overrun with patients and have few supplies. The International Criminal Court is urging swift action to address the growing humanitarian crisis. Kareem Khan is the chief prosecutor. I want to underline clearly to Israel that there must be discernible efforts without further delay to make sure civilians receive basic food, medicine, anesthetics, morphine. Israel says Hamas attacks have left 1,400 people dead in Israel. Ukraine's president says dozens of countries attended a summit this weekend on the Mediterranean island nation of Malta, seeking ways to end Russia's war on Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Odessa that Russia was not invited. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said those leaders who attended the summit support his peace proposal, which includes pushing all Russian soldiers out of Ukrainian territory. No matter what is happening in the world, he said in his daily video address, the most important thing for us is unity. But it is a challenging time for Ukraine's government. Ukraine's cause has lost momentum as the world's attention has shifted to Gaza and Israel. A counteroffensive that began in June has failed to retake large amounts of occupied territory in the east and south. A new USA to Ukraine is in doubt after the new House Speaker moved to drop it from a spending bill that includes Israel. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Odessa. Two people were killed and at least 16 others injured during a shooting in the U.S. in Tampa, Florida's Ybor City neighborhood. As NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports, a suspect was arrested yesterday. Tampa police said the shooting took place early Sunday morning as bars and nightclubs were closing following Halloween celebrations. A 22-year-old male suspect was arrested later in the day and charged with second-degree murder with a firearm. Tampa Mayor Jane Castor is a former police chief. She said enough is enough and called for stricter gun laws. We as a country have got to make decisions. The vast majority of Americans support responsible firearm ownership. They also support reasonable regulations. Police said the gunfire began with a conflict between two groups, but hundreds of innocent people got in the way. 
Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. President Biden is issuing an executive order today to create new standards and protocols for companies creating artificial intelligence. The new rules include requiring developers to share their safety test results and other information with the federal government. The administration says measures will also establish safeguards to protect Americans. It's NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBMR in Boston. Massachusetts is being sued by a legal aid group for imposing a cap on the number of families it can serve in the state's shelter system. Governor Healy says the system is at capacity. Her administration plans to put new families on a wait list starting Wednesday. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports on the legal challenge. The lawsuit says the state is rushing changes that undermine a 40-year-old right-to-shelter law. Oren Selstrom is with Lawyers for Civil Rights. The idea that the state would turn its back on children in desperate situations, forcing them to live in the streets, in cars, and in unsafe situations is appalling to many in the state. Selstrom says the state failed to comply with a requirement for 90 days notice to lawmakers before making big changes to the shelter system. State officials say they are reviewing the complaint. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Boston's new ordinance to clear out the tent encampment at Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard goes into effect Wednesday. The order prohibits tents and tarps on public streets and sidewalks. Mayor Michelle Wu says the rule will help address the crime and increase drug use in the area known as Mass and Cass. Wu tells WCVB's on the record that social workers have been working with people in the area for weeks. Dozens of people have already said they are excited and eager to go to this particular space that's been uh, created and, and that they've been connected to. Wu says the city has the programs in place to implement a permanent solution to the crisis at Mass and Cass. Police say they're searching for an 18-year-old wanted in connection with a shooting at Worcester State University. The Saturday shooting left one person dead and another injured. Officials are looking for Kevin Rodriguez. They say he's considered armed and dangerous and should not be approached. Police say neither the victims nor the shooter were students of the university. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. The Patriots couldn't keep up with the Dolphins last night in Miami. The team lost by 14 points. Final score was 31-17. to The Celtics are on the road in D.C. today. They'll take on the Washington Wizards tonight at 7. And the Bruins host the Florida Panthers tonight. Patchy fog and rain throughout the day today. We may get up to half an inch. Temperatures will reach the low 50s. Tonight, rain showers will likely continue until about 8. Then we'll have cloudy skies with temperatures dipping into the upper 30s. Tomorrow, skies clear for a sunny day around 50 degrees. It's 50 degrees in Boston right now. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Tel Aviv, Israel. 
We're on a balcony in this city within rocket range of the Mideast war. Alert sirens sound here from time to time. Israeli authorities say 1,400 people were killed, mostly when the war began on October 7th. And in a moment, we will hear the experience of one family whose son was taken hostage on that day. They haven't heard from him since. We begin with the voice of one person who spent the weekend amid the bombardment in Gaza. Israel launched a new phase in its campaign, sending ground troops along with intense attacks from the air. Palestinian authorities now say at least 8,300 people have been killed since the start of this war in Gaza. For part of the weekend, internet and phone service out of Gaza went down. And NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv was waiting to hear from one voice. Hey, Daniel. I finally heard from NPR producer Anas Baba in Gaza on Saturday night. I just put myself in danger in order just to get some internet near to the borders. I can't stay there much more. Baba took a risk. He went close to the Israeli border to connect to an Israeli cell phone network to tell me what was happening. Gaza was still in a near-complete communications blackout. Israel won't say if that was deliberate. The Palestinian service provider says Israel's bombardments knocked out the network. I needed to understand what's happening around me. For a journalist, not for a normal citizen, my mind was going to melt trying to understand what exactly is happening. On Saturday, he went to Gaza City, the area that's come under heavy bombardment. Palestinian officials say more than a thousand people were killed this weekend, including extended families. Rescue crews didn't know where to go, and people couldn't call them to direct them to the wounded. Baba saw horrific scenes of Palestinians who had tried to flee to safety on foot. Hundreds of them were not lucky. They died in the streets, injured in the streets, cried and screamed for help. And no one was listening. No one could have helped. Baba says it's getting harder to move around Gaza now to see what's happening. Gas for driving is running low. Roads are covered in rubble. He started getting around by horse carts, but now can't find any horse cart drivers anymore. He walked for miles through his home, Gaza City. This is not my city. I cannot even realize what street it is. I only can smell death, dead body under the rubbles. Nothing the same, nothing is the same. All the supermarkets are empty. There is no drinking water. Today I spent four hours looking for just like 20 kilos of wheat or flour in order to bake my family some bread. And I couldn't. Yes, Daniel, everything is getting worse and worse. I tried my best today. Basic necessities are dwindling. Nearly three dozen trucks of food, water, and medicine made it into southern Gaza from Egypt yesterday. That's the most that have come in a single day. But aid officials say it's not nearly enough. Dan, I'm so sorry, but I need to just like evacuate the area. Now the, pro- the, the crossing, the F-16, the artillery, everything is going insane here. I need to evacuate. Bye, bye, bye. There's not going to be internet. Maybe tomorrow. Bye. 34 hours after the communications blackout, the phone signal came back in Gaza. And so did our producer. Hey, Daniel. When the reception totally came back, I heard a lot of people screaming from happiness, shouting with a lot of slogans that finally we are back. But the most catastrophical, when you hear the stories of some of the people who still trying to reach some of their beloved 
And the answer was that the mobile was shut down or turned off. Some of them they lost, their beloved, their families, their friends. This morning, Anas Baba called me to say he saw an Israeli tank and bulldozer on the eastern edge of Gaza City, driving on Saladin Road, the main road. That could mean Israeli troops are closing in on the city. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Of the many hostages Hamas is holding in Gaza, one in particular is on the mind of someone I know in the United States. She told me about it before I left home to come to Israel. So my name is Edna Friedberg. I am your neighbor from across the street. I am a Midwestern American Jew. She grew up in Indiana and now lives in Washington, D.C. And uh, just having a hard time right now. (laughs) Edna Friedberg has many friends and relatives who live in Israel. And that extended group includes the family of an 18-year-old, Ophir Engel. His family told her that Hamas took Ophir hostage this month. I hurt for them, and so I can't stop talking about it. She even talked about it at her son's soccer game. I heard some dads from the opposing team next to me a few feet away with their dogs talking about Israel and Gaza, and one of them was saying, uh, you know, well, what do you expect? Um, Israel has been, you know, blockading Gaza for 15 years. I'm thinking in my head, buddy, it's actually 16. You know, like, know your facts. Just justifying what had happened, and I lost it. I went over and I started screaming at him <laughs> really loud. I was, I was not at my best self. I, I didn't like feeling that way. I didn't want to be eaten by anger. And then she thought of the hostage, Ophir. I pulled up one of the photos that his uncle had sent me, and I went over to the dad, who had been the most vitriolic, and I said, I'm really sorry for cursing at you. May I show you something? I want to show you a picture of this boy. We both have high school students out here on this soccer field, and tomorrow's his birthday, and his family doesn't know where he is. And I just would like you to look at him. And the guy told me, actually, that his family is Lebanese. And he started to cry, and I started to cry, and we actually hugged each other. A few days after Edna told me this story, I arrived here in Israel, and some colleagues and I went driving to meet the family of Ophir Engel. Just over oh, here, all of this green over here, this is the kibbutz. Oh, the kibbutz. This, this orchard the, here, this these trees. trees. Yeah, kibbutz. Kibbutz is the name for an old-style collective farm. Today, this prosperous kibbutz feels more like a gated community surrounded by orchards. We're at a gate here we call to get through the gate. I'm, yeah, I'm just going to call Yael and see. Yael, who got us in, is Ophir's aunt, a woman with curly blonde hair who has made herself a point of contact for the international media who want to cover this young man's story. I'm the Minister of Foreign Affairs here. My father is the Minister of Dutch Affairs because he speaks Dutch. And The family has also reached out to the government of the Netherlands because Ophir, like many hostages, has dual citizenship. One of Ophir's relatives made coffee as we walked through the house and emerged on the rear deck. We were on a high ridge overlooking Jerusalem on nearby hills. Place, but you can see all Jerusalem from here. This is a beautiful view. It is. Five interrelated families live in this community. And as we talked, adults came and went while children ran around the house. One of the adults spooned pomegranate seeds into little bowls for us as we sat at the table with the parents of Ophir. They are Yoav and Sharon Engel. 
Their son is an avid basketball player with a girlfriend he'd met in summer camp. What did you think of his girlfriend? I like her very much. Ophir's mom didn't say much in our conversation, though the anxiety was visible on her face. Ophir's girlfriend lived in another kibbutz, one called Biri, which is just outside of Gaza. Ophir was visiting her on the morning of October 7th, and at 6.30 in the morning, Ophir called home to report the attack. And we are going to the bomb shelter. We asked him to, you know, to, to write something every 10 minutes, you know, that everything is okay. Every 10 minutes, hour after hour, the messages came, but they grew more urgent. Ophir and his girlfriend's family reported houses burning. They heard explosions. In the last message, Yuval, his girlfriend, write me, we're afraid, we, we hear uh, Arabic uh, people in our house. The messages stopped. Ophir's parents did not learn the rest of the story until later that evening. The Arabs, uh, Hamas people, come in the house, they open the bomb shelter, they shoot the dog, and they take all the family out. The gunmen separated the women from the men and left the women on the grass to tell the story. Yuav Engel says he has only one goal for the more than 220 hostages. I don't want to say nothing about how to do it and what price that we need to pay for them. Bring them home, yeah. now. That's all. And if not, we don't have country. I think you're saying, if Israel cannot protect my family, what's the point of Israel? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Ophir's ancestors narrowly escaped the Holocaust. His great-grandparents left Poland in 1938. A few years after that, his grandmother, Yonit Harari Engel, was born in what became the state of Israel. She says she felt she was living in peace with her Arab neighbors, but feels that some look on her as a foreigner who should go back to Poland where her parents came from. I think that they want only one thing. They want our land. They don't want to see us here. I want to understand. You're saying you think that what Palestinians want and what Hamas wants is for those who emigrated from elsewhere to go back wherever they Yes, they say it all the, all the years. It's not a, something new. They say it all the time. This land, it's our land. What do, you, what do you think about when they say it exactly the opposite? They say Israel wants our land. They say the opposite of what you say. What do you think about when you hear that? I don't think nothing now. Because I born from this situation. She said she was born here in Israel. Ophir Engel's relatives accuse elected officials of showing little interest in their case, by the way. Hours after our interview, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did meet some families of hostages, but Engel's family declined to attend. His aunt explained to us it is important for us to save our energies for the most important things. This is NPR News. You're starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the UAW has struck a tentative deal with both Ford and Stellantis, but it has expanded its strike against GM. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger is taking stock of his work and career as a Republican lawmaker, including the times he opposed his party and the time he regrets he didn't. My vote against the first impeachment was was really a vote of self-preservation. And I, looking back, I thought that was a, a vote of cowardice on my end. More from his new book, Renegade, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Rain and patchy fog today. Highs will be in the low 50s. The showers continue into the evening as temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Clouds clear out overnight for a sunny day tomorrow. We'll have highs in the low 50s. It should be cloudy and in the mid-30s for trick-or-treating Tuesday night. It's 50 degrees in Boston. New York Times book critic Dwight Garner comes to City Space on Tuesday, November 7th. He'll discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading. Tickets are available at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Participant with the new film Radical based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential. Starring Eugenio Derbez in Theaters Friday. From National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Does this sound familiar? Mid-October buy Halloween candy. Mid-October, begin eating Halloween candy. October 30th, buy more Halloween candy. The holiday is now a multi-billion dollar industry, but Halloween traces its roots back about 2,000 years to the Irish countryside and a spiritual celebration known as Samhain. So how did Halloween get so commercial? We turn to the hosts of NPR's history podcast, Throughline, Rand Abdel-Fateh and Ramtin Arablouei. Halloween in early 20th century America was a holiday just for kids, a night all about mischief and pranks. These pranks are perpetrated mainly by young boys, and the pranks start kind of innocent. That's Lisa Morton, author of three books on the history of Halloween. Kids running out to, say, a local farm on Halloween night, they might disassemble a gate around the farmer's property and reassemble that gate in some place weird, like on top of the barn. What was the response to these pranks? At first, people were mildly irritated, but were kind of thought it was fun. The problem is, as the U.S. became much more urbanized in moving into the 1920s and 30s, The kids went into the cities as the cities were expanding, and at that point, the prank playing became far less innocent. Um, It became out-and-out vandalism. 
The kids were going into the cities and were starting fires. They were breaking windows. They were smashing light fixtures. They were tripping people on the sidewalks. And just as people were calling for a Halloween ban, others began to brainstorm a different solution to the pranking problem. They looked at it and thought, maybe we can buy these kids off. Entire neighborhoods started getting together for what they call house-to-house parties. The way it would work was that the first house might offer the kids a simple little costume, like a sheet, where they could dress up and pretend to be a ghost. And then the next house might offer the kids a little spooky walk through a disguised basement. And then the next house would offer the kids a treat. And eventually, out of that, we get the whole ritual of trick-or-treat. By the 1950s, television was spreading across America. And with it, sitcoms, spreading the idea of Halloween that went hand-in-hand with trick-or-treating. Trick-or-treat! Trick-or-treat! The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet has a Halloween episode. Oh, well, you look like a couple of desperate characters. I'm afraid I'll have to give in. There also was an immensely popular Disney cartoon, a Donald Duck cartoon called Trick or Treat, that helped cement the popularity of this growing ritual. TV networks weren't the only ones going all in on the holiday. Now the candy companies come in and they say, we'll make candies for you to give out. And the costume companies come in and say, we're going to give you not only a pre-made costume, but it's going to be your kid's favorite character. Corporate America sniffed an opportunity. They started to ask, could this kid's holiday be successful with adults too? All you ghouls and goblins gather around in the early 80s was looking at holidays that they could kind of claim. They looked at Halloween, which at that point was not a major adult holiday. And somebody at Coors was brilliant enough to hire Elvira. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Elvira here, Mistress of the Dark and sometimes surfer babe, because Coors Light is the official beer of Halloween and the party is at the beach, Malibu Beach. She's gorgeous, she's very voluptuous, she's witty, she's gothy. And as soon as they put standees of Elvira in every supermarket in the country, the beer flew off the shelves on Halloween. Hello, darling. Yes, sirree, it's Lilo me. Dressed in a tight, low-cut black gown, a dramatic poof in her hair and stilettos, Elvira embraced the vampy, subversive, seductive side of fear. Elvira understood the cultural power of Halloween, and so did movie execs. In the 1970s and 80s, Halloween and horror movies were popping up left and right. There was something for everyone. Well, there is absolutely one movie we can point to that completed that conversion of Halloween from a kid's to an adult's holiday. The classic. John Carpenter's Halloween. Halloween night, a small American town. Oh, God, help me, please! It was the first time that a movie 
used the holiday in a really horrific sense. And it was, of course, a terrifying movie. It was also, at the time, the most successful independent film ever made. Its impact almost cannot be understated, I think. I killed him. You can't kill the boogeyman. The last major evolution, I think, of the holiday that's fascinating is the global export. Our sitcoms and our television shows have been sold to markets all over the world, specifically The Simpsons. You're here, aren't you? Yes, Bart. I never left you. And of course, The Simpsons does a yearly Halloween episode, and people all over the world were seeing that and going, I like that. I want to do that. It's a, it's an American capitalism success story. <laughs> yes, it sounds like <laughs> it is. In the U.S. alone, people are expected to spend nearly four billion dollars just on Halloween candy this year. In the battle of trick or treats, treats are coming out on top. That was Ramtin Arablouei and Randa Abdel-Fattah, the hosts of NPR's history podcast Throughline. To learn even more about the history of Halloween, check out the full episode. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll learn about the controversy surrounding plans for the 2024 Olympics surfing competition in French Polynesia. It's 7.29. If you're taking a road trip this fall, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or tap the WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com And UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu together. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Israel is deepening its assault into the northern and central Gaza Strip, where Israel says Hamas is headquartered. NPR's Daniel Estrin tells us amid reports from the Gaza Health Ministry of thousands dead, people in Gaza were plunged into a phone and internet blackout. The main Palestinian phone provider said the bombardments uh, of Israel cut off a generator in a main facility in Gaza. Now, I asked an Israeli defense spokeswoman, uh, was this deliberate? Was Israel trying to knock out the communications. She said, well, she wouldn't say. But the blackout lasted about 34 hours, um, and this began just as Israel announced its second stage of the war, this ground operation and this intense bombing. The White House says that in a call Sunday, President Biden told Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu that Israel has every right to defend itself while stressing the importance of doing so within the bounds of international law that prioritizes protection of civilians. Outside a General Motors facility in Van Buren Township, Michigan... We are the union! We are the union! 
Union United Auto Workers members picketed for higher wages proposed deals with Ford and Stellantis await rank-and-file votes. This weekend, the UAW called for a strike at the GM facility in Spring Hill, Tennessee, the largest GM factory in North America. This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The November election is still a week away, but voting is already underway in Boston. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports on the first weekend of early voting. Election officials at the Margarita Muniz Academy in Jamaica Plain said about 100 people showed up to vote in Saturday's summer-like heat. Fewer people braved the rain and cold on Sunday. Bruce Fleischer of Jamaica Plain said he voted for Ben Weber for city council. I'm a retired union organizer. He's a labor lawyer. You know, I've spoken with him, stuff around labor rights, rent control. And also he seems to be very open to talking about things. Weber is running against IT director William King, who's backed by several incumbent councillors. Early voting continues at Boston City Hall all week. More information on district locations is at boston.gov. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A Boston police captain used his leg to force a civilian to the ground during a high-profile altercation in 2019. That's according to video of the incident newly released to the Boston Globe. The altercation was the subject of an excessive use of force claim against Captain John Danilecki. Last week, the city disclosed Boston's police commissioner rejected the finding. Danilecki now faces a three-day suspension. COVID vaccines did not do not increase the risk of miscarriage. That's according to a new study by Boston University researchers. Scientists found that rates of miscarriage did not increase among women who received the shot by the time they became pregnant. Researchers also found no increase as a result of male partners getting the vaccine prior to conceiving. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. The Patriots are coming off another Sunday loss. They fell to the Miami Dolphins yesterday on the road. Final score was 31-17. to The Celtics are looking for a win against the Washington Wizards tonight. Their third game of the season tips off at 7. The Bruins also play at 7 tonight. They're skating with the Florida Panthers. Showers are expected all day today. We may also see some patchy fog. Highs will be in the low 50s. Temperatures fall to the upper 30s tonight. The rain will likely continue through about mid-evening. Then overnight clouds clear out and tomorrow we'll have a sunny day with highs in the low 50s. For trick-or-treaters heading out tomorrow evening, expect clear skies in mid-30s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Tel Aviv. As we've been reporting, Israel expanded its operations in Gaza over the weekend. 
and we have next reached a senior Israeli official. Ron Dermer is Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs and an observer of Israel's war cabinet, a very small group that is making the biggest decisions on the war. Minister Dermer, welcome back. Good to be with you, Steve. I'll just remind people, you've said the stated goal is to destroy Hamas. President Biden has supported that, but also has urged you to minimize the loss of civilian life in Gaza, and you face fears of a wider war. How hard has it been in the war cabinet to clarify a strategy that you think will do all of those things? Well, we have a very difficult enemy, uh, and, but we're just going to have to achieve uh, our goal, which, as you said, is to eliminate Hamas's military capability to end its rule of Gaza, essentially to free Gaza from Hamas, and to make sure that the Gaza Strip doesn't pose a threat to Israel. I think the United States shares that goal. There, we also share a desire to do whatever we can to keep civilians out of harm's way. Uh, I'm glad to say that the fighting that's in the north that is going on now, uh, as our military is there, uh, we've had most of the civilians, about 90% of the civilians, have left the areas that we're fighting. So there were fewer and fewer civilians in those areas. They've moved to the south where they can get humanitarian assistance and get out of harm's way. As you know, it's been very difficult because Hamas does everything it can to put the civilians in harm's way to use them as human shields. But right now in the north, in the areas that we're operating, about 90% of the civilians have left. I do want to mention, though, you're telling people to flee to southern Gaza as a safe zone. It seems clear to us from accounts on the ground that it's not a safe zone. Our own producer in Gaza reports numerous strikes in the south. Why is Israel striking in what it tells people is a safe zone? Well, we didn't say that all of southern part of Gaza is a safe zone. There is a safe zone there in one particular part of Gaza on the coastline where people have, have gone. You have humanitarian assistance that are flowing there. We're ramping up that humanitarian assistance over the next uh, a few days. We are actually working with the administration closely because there are other partners in making sure that humanitarian assistance can get there, including Egypt, the Red Cross, the World Health Organization. So it's not the entire uh, southern Gaza Strip, but there are areas in the south where people can go and they will have a humanitarian safe haven there and we see that more and more people are going there and i think that's a good thing to keep these palestinian civilians out of harm's way and to not allow hamas to use them as human shields uh have you made any adjustments in your approach in response to president biden's appeals to minimize civilian casualties knowing as you do that the casualties in addition to being terrible for themselves diminish support for your effort well listen israel uh, goes to great lengths to ensure that the civilians of our enemy are out of harm's way. I don't think any other country in the history of the world has done that. Remember, and it's important for your listeners to remember, we're not fighting a war thousands of miles away. We're fighting against a terror organization right on our border. It's hundreds of yards away not thousands of miles away. And we are carefully doing what we can now as our army is advancing to get the civilians out of harm's your, way. If, We've if, had, if you limited your approach at all uh, in response to the appeals to do that. Well, we share the same goal, as I said, and we also share a belief that we should keep civilians out of harm's way. I can tell you that the Biden administration from day one has been seized of this matter. They have constantly raised it. What can we do in order to get these civilians out of harm's way? They've discussed it with us. Uh, we listen to them. We're trying to do everything we can to get that humanitarian assistance flowing and to get those civilians out of harm's way. So, but I think overall, listen, we're two democratic countries that care about human life, and we're fighting an enemy that doesn't care about human life at all. 
And that's why we have to do whatever we can to free Gaza from Hamas once and for all. I think that's not only going to be critical for Israel because of the massacre and atrocities that they perpetrated on October 7th, but it's also going to be critical for the civilian population uh, in Gaza, the innocent Palestinians in Gaza. We are not going to ultimately help them unless we can get rid of Hamas that uses them uh, as a tool in their war against Israel. You said you want someone else to rule in Gaza. You want to end Hamas's rule in Gaza. There was a leaked policy paper a couple of weeks ago that talked of relocating Palestinians out of Gaza entirely to Egypt. Uh, I know that Israel has since said that was a preliminary idea, but it raises the question, if you eliminate Hamas's rule in Gaza, what comes next? Who runs the place and who gets to live there? Well, what I think is clear is we don't want Hamas to be in Gaza. Also, Israel doesn't want to rule Gaza, so we have to find another path. But there's one thing is clear to everybody, that unless we actually uh, take out Hamas in Gaza, remove them from the scene, we're never going to actually get to a better solution in the future. The key for us moving ahead, the key to us finding uh, a solution uh, to all the problems of Gaza, first and foremost begins with defeating Hamas, defeating it militarily and defeating it politically and making sure that that territory is not used to threaten Israel and that we would never see the types of attacks that we saw on October 7th, which, as you know, uh, 1,500 people were, were murdered. And given Israel's size, it's about 2911s. We have to take action to make sure that this is not just another round, that this round is the last round. And that's why we have just, to remove Hamas. It's good for Israel. It's good for the Palestinians. And ultimately, I believe, Steve, it will be good for peace in the region. In a couple of seconds, do you not know who would run Gaza after Hamas is deposed? I, we're, we're thinking about that now, but we do think it's a little bit premature. I'm sure as the war unfolds, people will think more and more as we get closer to achieving that victory that we all have to achieve for everybody in the region. I think there'll be more and more thinking about what the day after should look like. Uh, and we're eager to begin that conversation, but the time is not now. We're thinking about it. Uh, but it's still a bit premature. First, we have to win. We have to make sure that Hamas is defeated. And I think that's going to open up many possibilities of a better future for Israelis, Palestinians, and for everybody who cares about peace in the region. Ron Dermer is Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs and is in Israel's War Cabinet as an observer. Mr. Dermer, thanks so much as always. Thank you. And, of course, he's speaking to us here from Israel, where we're reporting today. And Daniel Estrin, our Israel correspondent, is beside me and was listening in. What did you hear there, Daniel? You know, I heard, uh, Steve, that Ron Dermer spoke about Israel's great lengths to get people out of harm's way into southern Gaza. He said not the entire area of southern Gaza uh, is a safe zone, but in fact, repeatedly, Israel has published maps telling people that entire area south of what's called Wadi Gaza is safe. And in fact, it's not safe. There have been repeated bombings there. And of course, we also heard that uh, the idea is to remove Hamas and then uh, figure out who replaces it later. President Biden, as we know, has asked tough questions. Uh, Who will replace Hamas. Another notable thing that he said there, Israel, he says, cannot or will not help civilians too much until Hamas is removed. Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin. And of course, earlier we heard from Ron Dermer, Israel's Minister of Strategic Affairs, one of many voices we're hearing as we report today live from Israel. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we hear from people in Gaza growing increasingly desperate as Israel widens its air and ground assault. 
Rain is likely all day today. We may get as much as half an inch. We'll also have some patchy fog. It'll be in the low 50s, upper 30s tonight, and the showers continue, clearing overnight, then sunny tomorrow in the low 50s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with Renee Fleming and Inan Barnaton, November 12th at Symphony Hall with Voice of Nature, the Anthropocene, CelebritySeries.org, and Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com. A Bill Ricca-based maker of thermal processing equipment has new headquarters in Westford. BTU International tells the Boston Business Journal the move is part of an effort to downsize. BTU will be moving into the old headquarters of Puma North America. The iconic John Hancock sign at Fenway now has a new home. It's been reinstalled on top of the company's headquarters on Berkeley Street. The sign was at Fenway for 20 years. It was removed after John Hancock ended its 30-year partnership with the Red Sox. Charlton-based Treehouse Brewery plans to expand outside of New England. The brewery says it's opening a location in Saratoga Springs, New York, next year. This will be the company's sixth location. It's 744. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways in Select Theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Leila Faudel. Six weeks into a strike against the big three U.S. automakers, the United Auto Workers Union has clinched deals with two of them, Ford and Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler. UAW President Sean Fain calls them big wins. This contract is about more than just economic gains for auto workers. It's a turning point in the class war that's been raging in this country for the past 40 years. Over the weekend, the strike against General Motors expanded to a huge engine plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee. NPR's Camilla Domanoski joins us now to discuss all this. Hi, Camilla. Hi, Layla. So two tentative deals. What does this mean for the strike? Yeah, Ford and Stellantis workers are going back to production lines. For some Ford workers, today is actually their first day back. But it's important to note these are not done deals until the membership votes on them. Okay. Meanwhile, at General Motors, no deal yet. So the strike continues. In fact, it expands. So how good, in the view of workers, are these two tentative deals? Did the strike pay off? 
Well, these are the best contract gains the union has seen in decades. It's really no contest. There's a big pay increase, 25% over four and a half years, bigger than that for temps and newer hires. There's cost of living increases on top of that, bumps in 401k contributions, other things. You know, I spoke with Kyle Bender last night. He works at the engine line in Ford's Michigan assembly plant, and he's still reading in on all the details of the Ford contract. But the wage increase I love, my whole hope since the beginning of it was to get to $40 an hour, which by the end of this contract we will be at. Now, he does wish there were more gains about vacation time. The union really didn't seem to get much traction on work-life balance issues this round. But overall, he's leaning toward voting yes. In the UAW Facebook groups he's on with other workers, he's getting a different vibe. I will say that a lot of people seem unimpressed and willing to go back to the picket line. That is maybe willing to reject this deal. Wait, but you just described how good it is in comparison. Why? Yeah, well, you know, some people have specific concerns. Maybe they think the pay raises take too long to kick in or other things. More broadly, it's just a sense that the union could get more, although union leadership does say they really squeezed out every penny they could. And meanwhile, what's happening with GM? They're trying to get to an agreement as quickly as possible. That's a quote from GM there. Uh, This strike has already cost the company more than $800 million. And the new strike expansion is big. It's a big plant. It makes engines for other plants. So big ripple effects. You know, usually these three companies have very similar contracts. And I will note the Stellantis deal followed just a few days after that Ford tentative deal. So are we close to the end here then? Yeah, we are potentially nearing the end of this so far six-week strike. Depends on GM and on how members vote here. But the end of the strike is also in some ways just the beginning of the story, right? We're talking about a huge shift in the relationship between this historic union and this powerful and economically important industry. It's gotten much more antagonistic. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, the balance in power between workers and employers around the country has been shifting. And for the UAW, there's a huge question about whether they'll be able to use whatever deals they secure here to finally organize non-union plants like Tesla, foreign automakers like Honda and Toyota. NPR's Camilla Domanowski, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a vigil was held in Lewiston, Maine last night as people gathered to mourn those who died in last week's mass shootings. It's 749. I'm Scott Tong, pummeling you with pumpkin recipes. Our resident chef Kathy Gunst is carving and cooking up her favorites, including mac and cheese and roasted pumpkin. It is ooey, gooey, sweet, savory, so delicious, and also just a beautiful meal to have this time of year. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Health officials in Gaza say more than 8,000 people are dead as Israel expands its air and ground attacks in the area. President Biden signs an executive order today requiring consumer protections and safety and security standards for artificial intelligence technology. 
And the United Auto Workers Union is expanding its strike against General Motors despite coming to an agreement with Ford and Stellantis. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, where interior designers can help you rethink your living room or family room during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. We start the week with a rainy and foggy day today. It'll be in the low 50s. Tonight, upper 30s, and the showers continue. Skies clear overnight, and tomorrow we'll have a sunny day around 50 degrees. It's 50 degrees in Boston right now. WBUR supporters include German International School Boston. Learn about their German holiday market on December 9th and upcoming admissions events at GISBOS.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Whose history matters and who gets to tell it? Those questions inspired the History Makers, a project that has recorded video of thousands of oral histories of Black Americans. Juliana Richardson founded History Makers after careers as a corporate lawyer and cable TV entrepreneur. Richardson is one of many people who've reinvented themselves in late or midlife in unusual and inspiring ways. WBWAR's Anthony Brooks has her third act story. In a Chicago office building, Juliana Richardson enters a room full of white metal shelves packed with thousands of folders containing the stories of black Americans. These are the paper records. You know, we have their correspondence, biographical information, transcript. Richardson, who's 69, founded the History Makers more than 20 years ago. The nonprofit has collected masses of documents and recorded thousands of video interviews with the famous and not so famous. From black athletes like Ernie Banks. No bats, no balls, no gloves, no nothing. We played with um, old rag balls. So what did you use for a bat? A broomstick or something? A broomstick. That's exactly what you use, a broomstick. To black artists like poet Maya Angelou. Although I met Langston Hughes, he invited me to his house in Harlem. I don't remember anything he said, but I remember he was very kind. To black politicians, including a young state senator from Illinois, recorded in 2001. I'm Barack Obama. That's spelled B-A-R-A-C-K-O-B-A-M-A. And my birthday is August 4th. You know, that was done right in that room over there. And it's really extraordinary, you know, like the path that he took. I wasn't really focused on running for office per se. I was more interested in helping to build an agenda for the African-American community politically. Seven years later, he was president. Richardson says the seeds of the history makers were planted when she was a child, growing up in Newark, Ohio. She was the only black girl in her class, beginning to understand that something was missing. There was no history not black history. There was not even a sense of where my place was in American society. She learned about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and the War of 1812. She also knew about slavery, that her great-grandfather, whom she called Papa, had been enslaved. It was my job to go and get him ice water. And slaves never wanted to talk about slavery, but we would whisper, Papa was a slave. So that's all we knew. 
Richardson says that desire for a history of her own stayed with her. As a sophomore at Brandeis University, while researching the Harlem Renaissance in New York's Schaumburg Library, she made a life-changing discovery about this iconic American song. You're just wild about Harry, and he's just wild about Cannot do without Richardson says she was thrilled to learn that this song, long associated with President Harry Truman, was written by the black songwriting team of Noble Sissel and Eubie Blake. That inspired her to record a series of interviews with other prominent black Americans. In a TED Talk last year, she said in hearing their stories, she uncovered hers. I had a history to call my own. I, too, according to Langston Hughes, I, too, am America. And from that day forward, my life was forever changed. But Richardson's path did not follow a straight line. She went to Harvard Law School, then landed a job in a Chicago firm where she was the only black attorney and just the second woman to work in the corporate department. I was very upfront with the partner. You know, I said, what happened to the other woman? He said, well, some of the clients didn't want to deal with her. And I said, well, what about me? He said, some of them won't want to deal with you because they're not blacks in corporate America on the other side. After two years, she resigned. She became the cable TV administrator for the city of Chicago, launched her own production company. And then in 1985, she tried something else. This is where everybody's with me until I say what I'm about to say. I started a home shopping channel. She raised a million dollars and launched one of the first regional home shopping channels in the country. But it didn't last. Then Richardson worked for Comcast and C-SPAN until the cable industry restructured and she was out of a job, feeling lost and confused. I couldn't go back to practice law at this point. Too many years had passed. My home shopping channel had gone belly up. And what was I going to do? But I say often that sometimes at your darkest moment, the thing that's intended for you is right there. That epiphany she had at Brandeis sparked the next idea, a video archive of black Americans that she would call the history makers. It was a bold plan with one big problem. Richardson had no financial backing. Her friends thought it was a terrible idea. Even her mother, Margaret Richardson, who at 93 still helps run the Chicago office, had her doubts. What was your reaction? Did you think it was a good idea? (laughs) At first I thought, oh God, but no. She would go, Harvard-trained lawyer. What is a Harvard-trained lawyer? I say, when you don't have anything you're building, it is very, very, very hard. And getting people to understand including me, what the dream really was, is hard work. Richardson forged ahead. She began History Makers with a laptop on her dining room table. 23 years later, she's raised more than $36 million and recorded close to 3,600 interviews. Today, they're accessible through the Library of Congress and at colleges and universities across the country. That's me with Harry Belafonte, so that was our first fundraiser. Here's Ramsey Lewis. He just died, but he um, had an event in his apartment and raised 50000 for us in one night. The walls of Richardson's office are lined with photos of people who are now part of the history makers. But she says there's urgency to gather more interviews before it's too late. She says lots of written materials documenting black history from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries have been lost forever. 
I'm so concerned about our nation losing the 20th century. And why the preservation is key? Because it determines value. You preserve what has value. You don't destroy. And so I worry about that. After chapters as a corporate lawyer, entrepreneur, and cable TV administrator, history makers became Juliana Richardson's third act. You know, you get at a point where you start asking, what is going to be your leave behind? You know, what did you do in your life that was, you know, significant? If we do this right, it will be something that hopefully makes society a richer place. Juliana Richardson says she might have been a good corporate lawyer in another time, but history makers called. It began as a discovery, then a dream deferred, and then a leap into the unknown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Anthony will be back next Monday with another Third Act story. Have you reinvented your life in a surprising way? If so, tell us your story. You can email us at thirdactstory at gmail.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is calling for the protection of civilians as Israel expands its air and ground assaults in the Gaza Strip. It's Monday, October 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new Biden administration executive order seeks to rein in artificial intelligence and boost security and protections for workers. AI can use data, your own personal data, to make social media even more addictive for you or your kids. That's not a good thing. Also this hour, people in Lewiston, Maine, came together last night to honor those who were killed and wounded during last week's mass shootings at a bowling alley and bar. And a Salem Museum exhibition celebrates those winged creatures of the night, bats. We have all kinds of fears about bats that are not based in reality. They will not get caught in your hair. Patriots lose, rain, fog, and low 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Israel is maintaining a heavy bombing campaign in Gaza and extending its ground campaign deeper into the territory. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Israeli forces are operating in both the northern and central parts of Gaza. The Israeli military says it's expanding operations in Gaza with both infantry troops and armored vehicles. There have been only sporadic reports of ground clashes, but the military says Israeli troops are identifying Hamas fighters and the Air Force is striking from above. Israeli troops entered northern Gaza on Friday night, and that's where the forces appear concentrated. However, an NPR producer in the territory saw an Israeli tank and a bulldozer in central Gaza on the main road. Israel says it hit hundreds of targets over the weekend. Health ministry officials in Gaza are reporting hundreds of Palestinian deaths. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. 
A federal trial starts today for a former Louisville police officer charged with violating Breonna Taylor's civil rights. Taylor was shot and killed by police in a raid in 2020. Member station Louisville Public Media's Robert Roldan reports. Hankison was already acquitted of similar charges in state court last year, but that case was about him endangering Taylor's neighbors. This federal trial is important because it's the first time any of the officers involved are facing charges specifically for what they did to Taylor. Hankinson's shots did not hit Taylor. A trial begins today in Colorado that seeks to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's primary election ballot. From Colorado Public Radio, Benta Benta Berkland has more. The lawsuit from four Republican and two unaffiliated voters and a liberal group says Trump's actions after the 2020 election violated the 14th Amendment and make him ineligible to run for president. They say he engaged in an insurrection. On the ground, Republican voters like John McCord say even if Trump isn't on the ballot, he'll write his name in. And I think a lot of people here will. Because what they're doing is wrong. Trump's attorneys argue he never directly engaged in an uprising against the government. For NPR News, I'm Benta Berkland in Denver. General Motors is now the only big three U.S. automaker without a deal with the United Auto Workers. The union now has tentative agreements with Ford and Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis. Members do still need to vote. The UAW expanded its strike against General Motors over the weekend, walking out of the automaker's largest plant, which is a facility in Tennessee. The agreements include a 25 percent pay increase and the The agreement also includes regular cost of living increases, and those would be tied to inflation. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A tent encampment in Boston is due to be cleared out this week. City officials have started notifying those living near the so-called Mass and Cass area they need to leave by Wednesday. If they don't, police officers will remove them. Mayor Michelle Wu appeared on WCVB's On the Record yesterday. She says the order will address crime and increase drug use near Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. We've since now moved more than 180 people all the way through transitional housing, supportive housing into permanent housing, and then hundreds more have arrived. So we are working very closely with the state as well. Wu says her administration is working to make sure other makeshift areas don't pop up elsewhere. The city has reserved more than 100 shelter beds for people currently living at Mass and Cass. Massachusetts is being sued to prevent officials from capping the number of families in its emergency shelter system. The state plans to place new families in need of shelter on a wait list. But the legal aid group Lawyers for Civil Rights is asking a judge to stop the cap from taking effect on Wednesday. Attorney Oren Selstrom argues the Healy administration is violating the state's right to shelter law by not providing a 90-day notice of the change. The process needs to be slowed down so that it can be rolled out in a deliberative manner and to give the legislature ample time to weigh in. The state says it's reviewing the complaint. Harvard is setting up a task force to deal with anti-Semitism on its campus. The task force comes after President Claudine Gay faced intense criticism for her response to student comments on Hamas's attacks on Israel. Gay announced the task force during a meeting with a Jewish group on campus. Some Jewish students say they fear anti-Semitism is on the rise at Harvard. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. It was a defeat for the Patriots yesterday in Miami. The team lost to the Dolphins by 14 points. Final score was 31-17. to The Celtics are hitting the road to play the Washington Wizards. Tonight's game starts at 7. And the Bruins will skate at home tonight against the Florida Panthers. Patchy fog and rain throughout the day today. We may get up to half an inch. Temperatures will reach the low 50s. Tonight, the showers will likely continue until about 8. Then we'll have cloudy skies with temperatures dipping into the upper 30s. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Tel Aviv. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington. It was a weekend of terror in Gaza. And for the next few minutes, you will hear what it was like to live through it. On Friday, Israeli bombardments knocked out communications and plunged the Palestinian enclave into a near total blackout. Through the night, and for roughly 34 hours, there was no internet. No cell service across Gaza, just as Israel widened its air and ground assault in response to Hamas's attack earlier this month. In the El-Shati refugee camp in northern Gaza, a mosque blared a message from its speakers. The video was shared on a Gaza messaging group and widely on social media. We have no communication with the outside world, the voice says. We have no power but the power of God. Please pray for us. Families outside Gaza desperately tried to get through to their loved ones inside. Dalia Sharab kept calling and calling from Jordan. The number you are calling is currently unreachable. Please try again later. I've been trying like in the past two hours to call my parents, but there are no connections. I just pray for them. I pray for for their protection and for them to be okay and survive this. I don't know what to do, actually. I can't think. And I don't want to think. With Gaza in the dark, all the world was left with were the images and the voices from before the blackout. The pain of a mother who's lost her children. The anguish of a little girl who's lost her mother. A child in a purple dress pulled from the rubble, limp in the arms of the man who found her. Two little boys, brothers on a stretcher saying thank you, I love you to the paramedics rescuing them. With the blackout, the world didn't know what was happening in Gaza. Only those with workarounds like foreign SIM cards could get messages and videos out. Journalist Hind Khadouri shared voice memos. 
All we hear is explosions and the sky is lighting as if it's rain and thunder. I'm watching and I see where the explosions are happening and it's a place surrounding my neighborhood. It's also very sad that we don't hear any ambulances and this may mean that the ambulances are not being able to move and transport under all of these airstrikes. We're very scared and we're terrified and we don't know if we're going to make it till the morning. Khadudi did survive the night and by sunrise communication started to come back. People in Gaza began sharing what it was like to be cut off from each other and the rest of the world. I, I really have no words to describe how we were living the past two days. That's 20-year-old engineering student Shema Ahmed. In a voice memo, she says those hours without communications were among the most terrifying since the start of the bombardments. We hear different sounds every moment now. New kinds of weapons are being used. We lost connection to everyone. Not even the people who are in Gaza. We lost connection to the outside world and the bomb raid, as you hear, has gotten closer and more terrifying and stubbled. We were already in the dark with no electricity and now in the dark about what's going on around us. We were basically buried. We were suffocated. It was just unimaginable torture. And many people died in the past two days because ambulances weren't able to get to them in time. So this made the genocide even more horrifying and more horrible. Now, death feels nearer than ever for Ahmed. The idea of getting getting your house bombed is just becoming more terrifying because now, as you know, there's complete blackout in the hospitals. There is no anesthesia. Every day that passes, you just wish that you stay with your family. And if an attack happens, you just pass away with your family and you don't have to live all the suffering and all the pain. There's no sign that this scale of suffering will lessen anytime soon. During Gaza's blackout over the weekend, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a press conference that Israel's war will be, quote, long and difficult. By Sunday night, we could no longer get through too many in Gaza. Communications were down again in parts of the Palestinian enclave. Now, the voices that made it out of Gaza suggest the human cost of a war that is now three weeks old. The numbers of dead can be numbing, but they have climbed. The Hamas attack on Israel killed 1,400 people, men, women, and children, and Israeli authorities add that attackers took away more than 200 hostages. Palestinian health authorities say Israel's military response has cost at least 8,300 lives in Gaza. Upwards of 3,400 of those killed are kids, a death toll that exceeds the annual number of children killed across all of the world's conflict zones since 2019. That's according to the international aid group Save the Children. Monitoring all of this is Tirana Hassan. She's executive director of Human Rights Watch and joins us now from New York. Good morning. Good morning, Lena. So, Tehran, I want to start with this communications cutout it, in and out since Friday. What does this mean for civilians as this war intensifies? Well, the, the telecommunication services in Gaza had already been severely disrupted since the start of hostilities. But, you know, this near total communications blackout that uh, occurred on the 27th cut off 
most of Gaza's two million people from the outside world, but it just wreaked havoc with the emergency services who are already struggling to treat thousands of injured people, civilians who have been injured and killed in airstrikes. And it prevented families from reaching their loved ones at a time when they, they feared for their lives. And the laws of war are grounded in this principle of proportionality and deliberately shutting down and destroying telecoms systems would be considered disproportionate. What does it also mean, though, for visibility into the military operations? I mean, the, an information blackout like this risks providing cover for mass atrocities and further contributing to impunity for, for human rights violations. I mean, that's, that's absolutely uh, accurate. But on top of that, you need to have communication so journalists can be able to report what's happening from the ground. And ultimately, we need to have proper investigations with investigators in Gaza uh, and in Israel who are able to collect evidence for future prosecutions because impunity uh, for the crimes that are being committed will only fuel human rights abuses in the future. So at this moment, can Human Rights Watch do its work? And we're able to do our work um, in Israel, but we're also able to continue to, through having access to telecommunications, speak to people on the ground. But it's incredibly difficult, Leila, um, to be able to speak to survivors and witnesses. We also are able to use tools such as satellite imagery, which are giving us you know, accurate descriptions of the level of destruction. And um, ultimately, these will all be important pieces of information as we piece together the violations of international humanitarian law. As we noted earlier, Israel suffered a huge loss earlier this month. 1,400 people, many of them civilians, including children, were killed in an attack by Hamas. More than 200 people, also including children, were taken hostage. Israel says its military operation aimed at ridding Gaza of Hamas is an appropriate response. Is this a fair response to such an atrocity? Um, Leila, atrocities from one side don't justify atrocities from the other side. No party to any conflict is above international humanitarian law. And the laws of war are very clear. The responses to uh, the conduct of the warring parties must be proportional, and there is an obligation on the warring parties to protect civilians. We have to remember at this point in time that Israeli and Palestinian lives have the same dignity and they deserve the same protection and attacks on either, they, they should spark the same level of international indignation. Are they sparking the same level of international indignation? Sadly, we are seeing the international community fall short. Um, you know, and it might seem odd to talk about international humanitarian law and human rights law, but the importance that, you know, these standards are upheld is is critical for the survival um, of civilians who are caught in this war. And it matters what the the international community says, including countries like the US, um, who are close allies and being listened to by the Israeli authorities. Um, they need to ensure that they are not making statements that allow for or that they are permissive of violations of international law. We must be very clear that all violations of international humanitarian law will not be tolerated by the international community and that there will be accountability for these violations. That's whether it's blockades, it's collective punishment, it's the bombardment of civilian infrastructure, uh, the killing of civilians, the taking of hostages. All of this 
requires all of this will be accountable under international law. So we've been hearing from Palestinians the term genocide. We heard that from a young woman just now on our air a few minutes ago. When you look at this, how do you view it? We're investigating laws of war violations by both sides, and we have found serious abuses that amount to war crimes, and they include summary killings, hostage-taking, deliberate blocking of aid, and collective punishment. And we've also seen that both sides have been firing heavy weapons into populated areas, which has meant large amounts of civilian casualties. And these are all grave violations of international humanitarian law and the laws of war. Tirana Hassan is the executive director of Human Rights Watch. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. Good morning. You're starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, tensions are increasing along Israel's border with Lebanon, with nearby families living in fear as Israeli forces respond to rocket attacks by the Hezbollah militant group. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Former Congressman Adam Kinzinger is taking stock of his work and career as a Republican lawmaker, including the times he opposed his party and the time he regrets he didn't. My vote against the first impeachment was was really a vote of self-preservation. And I, looking back, I thought that was a, a vote of cowardice on my end. More from his new book, Renegade, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Rain and patchy fog today. Highs will be in the low 50s. The showers continue into the evening as temperatures fall to the upper 30s. Clouds clear out overnight for a sunny day tomorrow. We'll have highs in the low 50s. It should be cloudy and in the mid-30s for trick-or-treating Tuesday night. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Health officials in Gaza say the death toll has surpassed 8,000 people as Israel expands its bombardment of the Palestinian enclave. Meanwhile, U.S. officials are warning of an elevated risk of war spreading in the Middle East. 90.9 WBUR is following the coverage from the region as it develops. Keep listening for the politics, personal stories, and history you need to understand the moment. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at renewalbyandersoncares.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve a risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep in Tel Aviv. We are covering the Middle East war and also covering violence in the United States. In Lewiston, Maine, hundreds of people gathered for a vigil last night. They remembered 18 people killed last week in the deadliest mass shooting in the United States this year so far. Maine Public's Patty White reports. It was standing room only in the 1,500-seat Basilica Church, where people packed into pews, hugged and cried. At least 1,000 more gathered outside by candlelight to honor the family, friends and co-workers who were killed at a bowling alley and a bar last Wednesday. In between songs and music, faith leaders urge the community to support each other as they seek healing. Reverend Alan Austin is from Pathway Vineyard Church in Lewiston. Please, Lewiston, do not lose hope. He told them not to let the shootings divide them and offered two pieces of advice. That would be to be a people who listen well and a people who love well. The vigil was one of the first opportunities to come together after a two-day lockdown while police searched for the suspect. His body was found Friday night. He died after an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. As the community tries to come to terms with the loss of 18 people who ranged in age from 14 to 76, the grief extends beyond those who directly lost a loved one and beyond Lewiston's borders. Kimberly Finney lives in the nearby city of Augusta, but she says she grew up here. I haven't been able to cry. I've been so mad. I, I, in Augusta, yes, I lived there for a long time, but it's not my home like here. This is where my heritage is. This is where I grew up. And someone attacked it. Finney says she wants to see stricter gun laws so other communities don't have to endure another mass shooting. Here in Lewiston, Finney says it will take time, but they'll persevere. For NPR News, I'm Patty White in Lewiston, Maine. The drugs Ozempic and Wigovi both cause dramatic weight loss. They lower blood sugar, make people feel less hungry. The medications mimic a hormone that the body produces naturally after eating. It's called GLP-1. Reporter Michaeline Duclef has been studying this hormone, and she's discovered there's a way to increase it by changing what you eat. Think for a minute about what you had for breakfast. A bowl of oatmeal, a breakfast burrito. No matter what you ate, when the nutrients in the food reached your intestine, they triggered the release of GLP-1 into your blood. This is the hormone that Ozempic mimics. Sinju Sundaresan is a gut physiologist at Midwestern University. She says GLP-1 has several functions. For starters, it's one of about 20 other hormones whose goal is to make you stop eating. They tell the body that, hey, you know what? The food is in here, start absorption, which means your hunger signals are supposed to get suppressed. GLP-1 also helps to lower your blood sugar. This is a hormone that stimulates insulin release from the pancreas. So it's kind of an insulin enhancer. And it can communicate with your brain. Gary Schwartz is a neuroscientist at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He says GLP-1 binds to nerves that connect up with your intestine. These sensory neurons collect information from the gut and they signal it all the way to the central nervous system, in fact, to the brain stem. Which combines with other signals in your brain to put the brakes on eating, to make you feel satiated. Satiation is the termination of, of food intake. GLP-1 clearly, as you know, ha has those effects. Now, GLP-1's actions don't last long, 
only minutes. Darlene Sandoval is a physiologist at the University of Colorado. She says as soon as the hormone hits your blood, an enzyme begins to destroy it. And then the liver clears a whole bunch of it. And so by the time it like gets to the heart and the rest of the circulation, you know, there, there's very little of it. This is where GLP-1 differs substantially from Ozempic and Wegovy. These drugs persist in your blood for days and can even go inside your brain. Sandoval says this is why they induce such dramatic weight loss. GLP-1 can't do that. But there is a food that triggers the release of GLP-1 over a much longer period of time, meaning the release can last for hours after eating. Frank Duca studies metabolic diseases at the University of Arizona. He says most Americans don't get enough of this hard-to-eat food, fiber. Whenever my family find out that I'm, you know, I'm studying obesity or diabetes, they want to say like, oh, what's the wonder drug? What do I need to take? What do I need to do? And I just say, eat more fiber. I know you, you don't eat enough fiber because no one eats enough fiber. Duca and others have found that certain types of fiber can trigger the slow release of not just GLP-1, but also another hormone called PYY that suppresses hunger as well. And that has been shown to increase satiety, which is the length in between meals. Meaning you don't feel like snacking and you eat less at the following meal. But not all fiber does this. It needs to be fiber that bacteria in your gut can break down and eat. This includes fiber in legumes like beans, lentils, and peas, and fiber in whole grains like oats and rye. Duca is also really excited about another grain, barley. In one study with animals, we found that barley flour was the most effective for weight loss. This is in mice. This is not in, obviously in humans. Although studies in humans do find that these types of fiber are linked to a whole slew of health benefits, such as better regulation of blood sugar, lower percentage of body fat, and more satiation between meals. But beware of foods that claim added fiber. Duca says a lot of times the fiber added to processed foods is not the type that triggers these beneficial effects. I'm Michaeline Duclough for NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Bats are often part of the stories and decorations that come with the Halloween season. But a new exhibition in Salem argues that the furry flying mammals are largely misunderstood. It's 829. There's nothing like live radio with the WBUR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. As Israel continues its self-declared second phase of its three-week war against Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip, the International Criminal Court is speaking out. At a press conference in Cairo Sunday, the court's chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, called on Hamas to release the 200, release the 230 hostages it's believed to be holding and urging Israel to make sure people in Gaza get access to essential supplies. I want to underline clearly to Israel that there must be discernible efforts without further delay to make sure civilians receive basic food, medicine, anesthetics, Morphine. The U.N. and medical staff are voicing concerns about airstrikes hitting closer to hospitals. Palestinians have sought shelter in and around them alongside thousands of wounded. President Biden today signs a sweeping executive order focused on the breakneck pace of artificial intelligence development and critical safeguards to its impacts. NPR's Deepa Shivaram says the White House is pulling out all the stops. The White House says they've got a lot of folks who are leading the charge on AI right now, but officials are being very clear that they also want more people to come in from everywhere in the country and around the world to work in the public sector on AI development. They need to expand their recruitment, and that's something this order is also trying to address by easing some immigration rules for AI specialists. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts is teaming up with the federal government to help get migrants into the workforce. The state will open a legal clinic to fast-track work authorizations for migrants living in family shelters. State leaders say getting migrants into jobs will help fill local workforce shortages and open shelter space. Governor Maura Healey announced state family shelters will reach capacity this month. Atlantic sea herring populations are on the decline in the waters off Massachusetts. Cape Cod fishermen say mid-water trawling equipment is to blame. The trawlers can capture hundreds of thousands of pounds of fish, including herring. Local fishermen tell the Cape Cod Times they're pushing efforts to require mid-water trawlers to remain farther offshore. They believe that'll help rebuild local herring populations. The founder of the American Repertory Theater, Robert Brustein, died Sunday at his home in Cambridge. Brustein was 96. WBUR's arts and culture critic at large, Ed Siegel, recalls covering one of the most important figures in New England theater history. Robert Brustein arrived in Cambridge in 1980. At the ART, he assembled a troupe of magnificent actors while advocating for the works of bracing modernist playwrights from Beckett to Mamet. Auteur directors were as important as playwrights. In a 2005 New England Institute of Art documentary, Brustein acknowledged his approach wasn't for everybody. When we first arrived, we came with such a kind of glorious reputation, some of it earned, that we gathered to us 13,000 subscribers in our very first year. And I don't think the audience knew what they were coming to see. Over Brustein's 22-year tenure, those audiences got to see the most innovative theater in the area. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ed Siegel. For more on Robert Brustein, read Ed Siegel's appreciation on our website, wbur.org. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. Elliotthotel.com. 
The Patriots are coming off another loss. They fell to the Dolphins last night in Miami, 31-17. to The Celtics are looking to extend their winning streak tonight in D.C. They take on the Washington Wizards at 7. And the Bruins will be at home tonight. They'll skate with the Florida Panthers. Puck drops at 7. Showers are expected all day today. We'll also see some patchy fog. Highs will be in the low 50s. Temperatures fall to the upper 30s tonight. The rain will likely continue through about mid-evening. Then overnight clouds clear out and tomorrow we'll have a sunny day with highs in the low 50s. For trick-or-treaters heading out tomorrow evening, expect clear skies and mid-30s. It's 51 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Troops from Israel spent much of yesterday trading fire with a militia just over its northern border. Yeah, the Hezbollah militia controls southern Lebanon, and we witnessed their low-level warfare with Israel as our team drove into Israel's northern mountains. Our producer, Ziad Butch, noticed something as we arrived at a village near the border. Oh, we're here. Virgin Mary? No, I missed the Virgin Mary. Like a statue at the entrance? Yes. Yeah. Right on the sign for the city. It is called Fasuda, and it's a Catholic village centuries old with multiple statues of saints on the streets. Layla, we're talking about an overwhelmingly Muslim region and a predominantly Jewish state, but of course there are Christian communities in this region as well. So how close is the fighting to that village? Well, last night we could hear it, and this is what it sounded like as we walked through a courtyard where kids were playing. I heard. This was just after sunset, and we heard booms like that every few minutes, sometimes more often. The Israeli Defense Forces are out there in the hills blasting back as Hezbollah fighters were firing weapons into Israel. So why are these residents still in their village? I know that Israel told many to evacuate. Why did they stay? Yeah, the residents say the government cleared out people within four kilometers of the border, and this village is four and a half. So they're staying for now. Uh, I did talk with members of one family who sat outside on their deck as we listened to these booms. And through our interpreter, I asked Mike Banawi what it is like to live here. It's terrifying that you, that being out and about in the village, you feel like you're in a prison, that they're, that you're, they're chased, the rockets are chasing you at any time. Anyone could be hit and it's a rocket that could really kill quite a number of people and that there's only five seconds to get to a shelter because we're so close to the border that if you go up on a hill, you can see over the border. Yeah, some of the people in that village have military experience, as people across Israel do, and they recognize different kinds of firing in the dark. Now, you were so close, we can hear the booms. What is the fighting like out there? Well, we talked with an Israeli officer who called this a slow-motion war. 
Israel, of course, knows that Hezbollah in the north is allied with Hamas in the south. Many days in the last few weeks, Hezbollah fires anti-tank weapons into Israel. Normally, these would be short-range weapons, but if you shoot them high, the projectiles go high and go for miles across the border. Israeli forces respond with artillery or drones or rockets. Some people have been killed including civilians, including a journalist a couple of weeks ago on the Lebanese side of the border. And yesterday, multiple rockets came out of Lebanon, and three of them fell into a different Israeli border town, the one we visited. And later, we went to a city on the coast, and as soon as we arrived, a warning siren went off, a sign of incoming rocket fire. Are the soldiers aware of the risk that this sparks a wider war? They are trying not to be. We're told Israeli soldiers are encouraged not to watch the news, not to follow social media. They might even get their phones taken away. They're told not to be manipulated and just respond to the tactical challenge in front of them. Of course, Leila, you and I do follow the news. We're aware of the wider picture, and we know this is a dangerous game. Hezbollah is seen as a proxy for Iran, whose foreign minister made warnings on NPR that groups like Hezbollah have their finger on the trigger of a wider war. So each side is aware of the pressure not to go too far. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. President Biden is taking some big steps today to try to rein in artificial intelligence. The White House is worried it's moving so fast and has a lot of risks. AI can can use data, your own personal data, to make social media even more addictive for you or your kids. That's not a good thing. AI systems can use your data to discriminate against a person of color who wants to buy a home. That's unacceptable. That's White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients. NPR's Deepa Shivaram spoke with him ahead of a new executive order being announced by the president today. And she joins us now. Hey, Deepa. Hey there. So you've been talking to the White House about this for months as they look at the problems and the opportunities of AI. What's the biggest development in this new executive order? Yeah, so a lot of what has been done so far between the White House and tech companies has been voluntary. For example, the White House had asked tech companies a couple months ago to expand their testing process for AI systems, Mm -hmm. which is called red teaming. And that makes sure that the AI doesn't discriminate or can't be hacked by people who want to use it in negative ways. But in this new executive order, the government is going one step further. They're trying to do this by providing some oversight of that red teaming process for bigger, high stakes new AI systems. They want companies to do this testing, but they also want the results of that testing to be shared with the government. When I talked to the White House Chief of Staff, Jeff Zients, he told me that companies can't be the only ones involved in the AI development process. They can't grade their own homework. We will have uh, resources in the federal government to pressure test and make sure that the companies are doing good testing, that the companies are doing all they can to secure the safety of these products. In reality, though, Deepa, how can the government do that? Does this executive order have teeth to hold AI developers accountable? Yeah, that's a fair question. The White House is able to require that sharing process because they're invoking the Defense Production Act, which was a Korean War era law that expands presidential authorities, especially when it comes to things around national security. And that law had kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. But since COVID, this administration and the last one have found new ways to use it. Even with that, though, some of the enforcement elements here are definitely still in the works. And ultimately, there's also room for Congress to create laws that would regulate AI 
AI companies, particularly on privacy rules when it comes to data. And while we know that legislators are meeting about it, there hasn't really been any forward-moving action on that getting passed anytime soon. This is such cutting-edge technology, and it's moving really quickly. How prepared is the government workforce for all these changes and its new watchdog role? I mean, yeah, to your point, this is a really expansive executive order. The EO also calls on agencies across the federal government to set up new standards and safety programs for how AI can be used across the country in everything from creating new drugs to how it could help teachers in classrooms. And they're going to try to develop a new system so that you can tell online if something you're looking at is created by AI, essentially like a watermarking system. Mm. So you'll know if it's true or if it's legitimately from the government so that people don't get fooled by by fake, fake tax fraud callers or fake videos of President Biden. And all of that work will require an equipped workforce, right? The White House says they've got a lot of folks who are leading the charge on AI right now, but officials are being very clear that they also want more people to come in from everywhere in the country and around the world to work in the public sector on AI development. They need to expand their recruitment, and that's something this order is also trying to address by easing some immigration rules for AI specialists. And PR's Deepa Shivaram. Thanks, Deepa. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a wave of resignations happening among CEOs. It's the biggest turnover in more than two decades. Rain is likely all day today. We may get as much as half an inch. We'll also have some patchy fog. It'll be in the low 50s. Upper 30s tonight and the showers continue, clearing overnight, then sunny tomorrow in the low 50s. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a new report finds that Massachusetts is the fifth worst state for competitiveness when it comes to business taxes. The Tax Foundation's newly released State Business Tax Climate Index ranks the Bay State as 46th for overall taxation. It cites the state's millionaire's tax as a driver of the poor ranking. That tax applies to any income over a million dollars. The state dropped 12 spots in the ranking from last year. A Duxbury Oyster Company plans to open a new canning facility in New Bedford. Island Creek Oysters plans to open a facility that'll tin shellfish and fish in oil or brine. The company tells the Patriot Ledger the goal is to help local fishermen compete locally with international canned fish markets. Two of the country's most charming boutique hotels are in Massachusetts. That's according to a new report from Vogue. Tourists in North Adams and far away on Nantucket both made the list. The publication says design and local charm helped boost both hotels' rankings. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com Circle Furniture, with their upholstery event through October. Hundreds of sofa sectional and chair styles in sustainably sourced fabrics and leathers. CircleFurniture.com And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Halloween is creeping up, and the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem is ready with an exhibition about creatures of the night. Not ghosts or mummies, but bats. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports on why the show is blending art and science to celebrate these furry flying mammals that have been feared for centuries. 
When you hear the word bat, maybe you picture beady little eyes, or fangs, or vampires. I am Dracula. Oh, they are so misunderstood. Janie Winchell knows full well that a lot of people get the heebie-jeebies from bats. We have all kinds of fears about bats that are not based in reality. They will not get caught in your hair. They are superheroes without capes. Winchell directs the Peabody Essex Museum's Art and Nature Center. She says the exhibition titled Bats, with an exclamation point, is an empathy campaign for these mysterious nocturnal creatures. This soundscape draws visitors into a gallery filled with works by living artists, memorabilia, cultural artifacts, and historical depictions. Some are from the museum's collection, others are part of a traveling conservation exhibition. Together, they illustrate how people have loved and hated bats through the ages. A reproduced 17th century print features four witches with a winged devil. Winchell says the connection between bats and vampires was cemented by Bram Stoker's gothic 1897 novel, Dracula. He's the first one who had Dracula converting into a bat. Actor Bela Lugosi also shapeshifted as Dracula in the classic 1931 horror film. There's a photo of him here and a poster of the vampire posse from the modern-day TV series, What We Do in the Shadows. When I turn into a bat, there's no real skill to it at all. I just shout, BAT! Batman, Count Chocula, and Count Von Count from Sesame Street are also represented. The exhibition weaves between fiction and fact to help us understand why we might be scared of bats. Oftentimes, uh, bats are photographed with their mouths open, and that can evoke a feeling of like they're being aggressive. But more often than not, they're actually echolocating to visualize what's in front of them. Their high-pitched travel and hunting sounds are slowed down for the human ear at a listening station. Winchell says of the more than 1,400 different species of bats, only three drink the blood of animals or birds. A lot of people don't realize there's pollinating bats, but that's actually an important role for bats around the world and including in the United States. Bats are also the number one predator for night-flying insects. Without bats, we'd have to rely so much more on pesticides for controlling crop pests and even bothersome insects like mosquitoes. And this is why Winchell calls bats superheroes. But most bat species are in decline, including the little brown bat that's been decimated by white-nose syndrome in Massachusetts. Winchell adds some people eradicate vulnerable bat colonies thinking they're pests. That's another important reason for raising awareness because bats have been persecuted for such a long time and they actually have a very slow reproductive rate. They don't rebound quickly. But many cultures revere bats. In Asia, they've long symbolized good fortune. Origami artist Michael LaFosse folded about 300 paper bats that are roosting on a corner wall. And this design I call the happy good luck bat. It's colored red, a lucky color in China. You can see the smile. It's a very happy-looking bat. LaFosse, who's also a biologist, has been studying bats' faces and forms for decades. 
what you don't understand, you tend to fear. And if you take the time to do the research, they become less threatening and even in some cases just totally lovable. The show's guest stars are pretty cute. Winchell introduces a small visiting colony of real Egyptian fruit bats. They're huddled in a spacious viewing hutch. In my mind, these are bat ambassadors. So for people to have a moment where they can just be with bats as the bats are, and just to like have a moment to witness them. I'd ideally like them to feel positively about bats, but most importantly, for them to have an appreciation of the role that bats play around the world. Winchell also hopes this show encourages visitors to look up at dusk so they can catch their swooping silhouettes against the darkening sky. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll visit a major hospital in Gaza where thousands of people are taking refuge. Their situation is growing more desperate as Israel says it, it's hit 600 more Hamas sites in the area. And Russia and China are warning the U.S. about the dangers of meddling in other nations' business. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Israeli officials say they're expanding attacks on Hamas in Gaza as President Biden calls for the protection of civilians. Court arguments begin today to block former President Donald Trump from the ballot in Colorado and Minnesota over his actions on January 6th. And gun violence tore through the nation this weekend, with officials recording a dozen mass shootings in the U.S. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. We start the week with a rainy and foggy day today. It'll be in the low 50s. Tonight, upper 30s, and the showers continue. Skies clear overnight, and tomorrow we'll have a sunny day around 50 degrees. It's 51 degrees right now in Boston. If you are a passionate fan of self-checkout machines, raise your hand. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, the United Auto Workers Union has reached a tentative deal with Stellantis. That's the Jeep, Ram, Dodge, Chrysler people based in Europe. The deal is said to be similar to the union's earlier agreement with Ford, but no deal with GM. And the union is widening its strike against that automaker. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. 
Yeah, David, a lot of moving parts to this story. GM and the UAW are still talking. The union did not explain the reason why it expanded its strike against GM, but it did ask thousands of workers at a plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee, to walk off their jobs. This is an important plant for GM. It makes engines for a number of its vehicles, including Silverado pickups, which is a very important profit leader for the company. The GM move came just hours after the union announced a deal with Stellantis. Uh, the union's leadership also approved the tentative deal reached last week with Ford. Now that deal now goes to the rank and file for a ratification vote. Do we know what's in this tentative Stellantis contract? Well, it appears to be similar to the deal reached with Ford. Big pay hikes for workers, especially for temps, ending tiered wage systems. An aspect of the Stellantis deal that the union highlighted was that it will add jobs. The union said Stellantis wanted to cut 5,000 workers. Now those jobs will be preserved and 5,000 more added. And a notable element of that, David, Stellantis will restart a plant it had idled in February. That plant is in Belvedere, Illinois. Now Stellantis will expand operations there. All right, Nova, thank you. Markets, S&P and NASDAQ futures are both up between five and six-tenths of a percent. The Federal Reserve starts meeting tomorrow and is unlikely to raise interest rates on Wednesday. The 10-year interest rate now, 4.91%. The leader of the company formerly known as Twitter wants X to become more than a microblogging system and a vehicle for advertising. In a speech to employees, as reported by the publication The Verge, Elon Musk wants to make X a PayPal, a Venmo, a Bank of America, and who knows, maybe even a Fidelity Investments. And he wants much of this to happen within a year. In audio obtained by The Verge, Musk says, quote, when I say payments, I actually mean someone's entire financial life. There are photos you can find of Musk from 1999 posing in front of a big X.com 23 years before it was used to rebrand Twitter. That was Musk's online FDIC-insured bank that, through mergers, became PayPal. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Now, a moment of tension and catharsis about what is, for many, a daily irritation, self-checkout machines. Maybe you adore them, but I venture some of you don't. They're the subject of a new piece in The Atlantic written by Amanda Mull. Amanda, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We've had these gizmos, I don't know, it seems like almost a quarter century now. What was the selling point originally back then? Well, the selling point has always varied a little bit depending on whether you're a shopper or you're a retailer. The selling point that retailers told consumers about was that they are a marvel of efficiency. You will grab and go and be done with your errands in record time. But the way that they were sold to retailers by the vendors that build them, it was a promise of labor savings. So basically one person overseeing a corral of 10 self-checkout kiosks is a lot cheaper than 10 people ringing 10 registers on 10 lines. I look at these things and besides seeing them as costing human jobs, I see them as like your worst social studies teacher in middle school, devices that are super judgmental. Please place your item in the bagging area. I have already placed my item in the bagging. You know, that kind of situation. They can be extraordinarily unpleasant from the customer point of view. 
They make you feel like you're under surveillance, first and foremost, even if you're trying to genuinely pay for everything that you have brought to the register. They make all kinds of noises. They have flashing lights when you put something down in the wrong spot or when it weighs a different amount than the register was expecting it to weigh through no fault of your own. And it's like a really good reminder that a lot of this stuff was sort of always happening in these transactions, but an employee was doing it. A lot has been made of supposedly rising levels of theft in stores across the country, although we find that concrete data to back up that trend is a little hard to come by. But you take some time to explore the relationship between using machines to check out and theft in stores. What did you find? Yes, this is a really interesting point, I think, because as you said, there's no proof that there has been like a sudden recent catastrophic rise in shoplifting. The data, it just is not there to suggest that that's true. But what is true is that in the decades that we've adopted these self-checkout machines in more and more applications, these machines come with an ingrained amount of theft that they create that wouldn't be there otherwise. And retailers have always been aware of this. And you get that because like, there's just nobody watching a lot of times. Like there's one harried employee running around trying to solve the errors in everybody's transactions, but there's nobody just sort of like minding the store. So where are we in 2023? You say some retailers rethinking these, easing some of them out? So what you see is retailers adding more employees to the self-checkout area, which takes some of the self out of self-checkout. Walmart and Costco in particular have decided to staff those areas more consistently and have been promising customers that if you're at self-checkout and you want an employee to check out all of your groceries for you, then an employee will do that for you. You don't have to do it yourself, even if you're at one of those kiosks. So you've got bigger retailers, especially where people buy lots and lots of stuff in a single purchase more commonly, are just trying to find a way to sort of reverse engineer more customer service back into the checkout process because they're losing more money on this in a lot of cases than they're saving by cutting labor. Amanda Mall, staff writer at The Atlantic. Her new piece is called Self-Checkout is a Failed Experiment. Amanda, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you, honored listener, could change one single thing about self-checkout devices, what would it be? Email me using morningreport at marketplace.org. Love to hear from you. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Low 50s today and showers are likely all day. We might also see some patchy fog. Upper 30s tonight, showers end around mid-evening, then skies clear overnight. It's 51 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. I'm Scott Tong, pummeling you with pumpkin recipes. Our resident chef, Kathy Gunst, is carving and cooking up her favorites, including mac and cheese and roasted pumpkin. It is ooey, gooey, sweet, savory, so delicious, and also just a beautiful meal to have this time of year. That's Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.